Hi everyone and welcome back to Disruptive Voices. My name is Nina Kosh and today I'm hosting this episode with my colleague Siobhan Morris. Hello, today we are joined by our guest, Professor Sophia Spara, Professor of Architecture and Spatial Design at the Bartlett School of Architecture. Welcome Sophia and thank you very much for joining us. So to kick things off, could you provide an overview of your work examining the architecture of national parliament buildings within the European Union and how this, um, I suppose, shapes and influences the nature of political debate? Hello, thank you for inviting me. The work was the first attempt to systematically study the 28 national European Parliament buildings, which includes the UK in spite of Brexit, and discuss the relationships between spatial configuration and, and the political culture. This is work that I did in collaboration with Naomi Gibson, who is a PhD student, and uh, Gustavo Maldonado, who is an MSc graduate at the Bartlett School of Architecture. And, uh, of course, we do not claim that we have in-depth knowledge of the political systems in these countries, but uh, we sought to trace the history of these parliament buildings and, um, in a way, offer an architectural approach to studying them. And we mainly focused on the parliamentary chambers in these buildings rather than the entire buildings. And um, provided the first classification based on the relationship between the legislature, the executive, and the chair, where these three powers sit in the parliamentary chambers. But we did analyze two parliament buildings in their entirety, and these were the Palace of Westminster and the Reichstag building. So we looked at the historical trajectories of the 28 parliament buildings at the timeline of the building's construction, the point at which they changed from being palaces to become parliament buildings. We looked at the stylistic range of the buildings and we saw that some had uh, quite strong or others had subtle references to classicism. But there was a stylistic range as well, ranging from Gothic to constructivist and modern. Some authors have noted a strong association between conservatism with stone, as in the Reichstag building, which was remodeled in the 90s, while others have noted, again in relation to the same building, a relationship between political transparency and physical transparency through the use of glass and uh, transparent materials. And we also noted that in some parliament buildings, there is a move, a clear move, to create transparent ground plane so that uh, you can see through glass to the ground floor of the parliament building inside and to have this kind of visual permeation between the building and the street. And as I said before, many of these buildings were not purpose-built as parliaments. There were palaces that were reconfigured. And uh, most appear to have become parliaments in the 19th century, which coincides with the transition from former monarchies to constitutional monarchies or to democracies. And this phenomenon also uh, coincides with the dissolution of former empires and the um, recovery of sovereignty for countries such as Ireland and Greece. In terms of how the configuration of the parliamentary building shapes the political debate, 
Some buildings can facilitate a lot of informal interactions based on the spatial structure because, for example, the Houses of Parliament in the UK is quite ringy, a grid-like structure which allows a lot of different ways in which people can move, bumping into each other, which perhaps facilitates a lot of informal ways of people communicating with each other. Whereas the Rastach building, which which houses primarily the parliamentary chamber, is a more tree-like structure. It has a large ring of circulation around the parliamentary chamber, but most of the offices of the parliamentarians are in other buildings outside this building, and therefore is perhaps less prone to facilitate informal interactions. Can I ask a little bit more about the weight of these buildings' legacy? As you mentioned, they were built in a different period for different purposes, and yet there are the space where very current topics and very life-changing topics are being discussed. So without completely changing the building, how do we make sure that they evolve with the time and with the conversations that are taking place within them? Yes, lots of these buildings had a remodeling in order to adapt, particularly those buildings that underwent the the political system, underwent a change from former communist republics to European contemporary republics, but others have not gone through this remodeling. There were also buildings like the parliament in Romania that were commissioned before the political change took place, and they were completed after the political change. So they present tremendous interest in terms of that disjunction between the political system and the form of the parliamentary building. For those who might not be aware who are listening, could you briefly describe what the Reichstag in Berlin and the Houses of Parliament in London look like? There are two buildings that are quite different in terms of style. So the UK Parliament building is a Gothic fantasy that was built in the middle of the 19th century, whereas the Reichstag building was built towards the end of the 19th century. It presents a stylistic range in terms of characteristics, architectural characteristics, and it had a very, very troubled history based on the political history of Germany. It was burnt in 1933, And then it was remodeled in the 90s when the parliamentary seat changed from Bonn and moved to Berlin. In um, opening up the building, they discovered that uh, the Russian army, when they took over Berlin, had left a lot of graffiti on the physical structure of the building in order to deliberately make their mark on that political moment and the defeat of, um, of Germany. So they decided, the designers decided that um, they could actually selectively expose some of this graffiti as a marker of that particular moment in history. In terms of internal configuration, the Palace of Westminster is a grid-like structure, as I was saying before. It uh, has a linear arrangement and there is a long axis that runs from one side to the other and links together the Commons Chamber and the Lords Chamber, passing through the central lobby, which is the centre of all the thoroughfares that uh, travel through the building. The central lobby is the place where the public can come and lobby if they want their MP. So the organisation of the Palace of Westminster very clearly articulates the three powers that come together in the building, the Lords, the Commons and the public. Coming to the Reichstag building, 
The center of the building is occupied by the plenary chamber. And basically what the architects did was to hollow out the entire building and to create the three-dimensional conditions that would allow a strong visibility links from one side to the other in a straightforward manner, but also perpendicularly, um, vertically and horizontally to travel through the building through the use of glass. A very strong political concept in the politics of Germany since the Second World War is political transparency. And this has found translation in many of the federal buildings in Germany through the use of glass. And we see that taking place also in the Reichstag building. So surrounding this parliamentary chamber are a lot of um, walkaways, voids, bridges crossing these voids that um, facilitate the movement around the chamber and facilitate those vertical and horizontal links that allow strong visibility, intervisibility connections from one side to the other and through the chamber. Coming to the relationship between the public and the parliament, what is very strong in the Reichstag building is that immediately on entering, the public has a view to the chamber through the glass facade that is immediately in front of them. But they cannot reach it directly. They have to go through lifts to the first floor level and then access the galleries that are over the ground floor of the chamber. And they have a rake which allows more or less a sensation that one is seated very close to the plenary chamber when the decisions are taking place. The same galleries uh, accommodate the press as well. There is one more interesting characteristic in the Reichstag building, which is that the public can actually reach the top level where a glass dome over the plenary chamber was meant originally to facilitate direct visibility inside the chamber from the top. And again, that was a symbolic expression of the electorate having a very direct relationship with the public. Unfortunately, confidentiality issues led to the closing of that link. Because as I was speaking to one of the parliamentarians from the Reichstag, she explained to me that people were taking photographs, looking through the glass, and uh, parliamentarians were holding confidential documents. And these photographs then can be uploaded to social media. So that was a breach of confidentiality. So here we come across a quite interesting case where the need of transparency is in a very strong tension with the need of, for confidentiality. It's very interesting how the buildings themselves kind of shape political processes and how they express the ideas that they stand for. As you were saying in, in Germany, the idea of memory politics and the culture of remembrance in political processes post-war has been paramount. So I wondered how can place-based framings of parliament buildings be useful when we're actually examining national identities more widely? So how do these buildings have meanings associated to place? This is a really nice question. And um, the places and the sites on which these parliament buildings are located sometimes have huge importance in terms of national identity, particularly for nations like um, the UK, where the Palace of Westminster has grown based on a gradual process of accretions 
over the centuries. But sometimes that sense of national identity and the way in which it's associated with a site has to do with a particular event that has played a very strong role in the political development of a country, as, for example, in the case of the Greek parliament building, which was originally the palace of the first king of Greece, King Otto. And uh, it was established in 1843 as a national parliament after the September the 3rd revolution, where the national army, supported by large sections of Greek people and led by veterans of the Greek War of Independence, gathered in front of the palace, demanding the granting of a constitution and the departure of the Bavarian officials that dominated the government. So this has passed into the national memory of Greeks as the site of constitutional change and universal suffrage. There's also a very interesting case with the Scottish Parliament building, which are not the product of a gradual accretion, but are constructed for the purpose of housing the first Parliament building in a single rapid step of the new devolved nation in the Holyrood site, which did not have a parliamentary history before, but was close to the historical fabric of Edinburgh and therefore providing some symbolic significance as part of Scotland's ancient uh, seat of power. In the conference that we hosted at the Bartlett School of Architecture in collaboration with the UCL European Institute, we invited architects, designers of parliament buildings in the UK and abroad. And uh, the Benedetta Taliabue from Miragia's Taliabue office, which designed the Scottish Parliament, explained that the very interesting issue for them in the design of the Scottish Parliament was how do you create a symbolic language for the new identity of Scotland and how do you invent symbols about this new identity for scratch. So the design grew out of some photographs that her partner had taken when he was a student of the site, which were about boats that were upside down. And this became the symbol of a parliament building that grew out of the site. So there are different ways in which this parliament building relate to the places and relate to the sites. And there are different ways by which national identity in relation to memory is constructed in these countries. Sophia, your work is cross-disciplinary by nature. You've talked about architecture, of course, but also history, political science, psychology, and many others. Can you explain why this diverse approach is particularly important when studying parliament buildings? Well, parliament buildings are the places where all strands of society are represented and um, vital issues are debated. So it seems natural to examine them from diverse perspectives, such as political science, political theory, sociology, economic theory, anthropology, and so on. And competing views from these perspectives are legitimately held and they need to be resolved through open democratic debate. But the space in which these debates take place is created through architecture and the configuration of the layout of the parliament can be significantly influential. And architects need to invite input from other disciplines and they need to engage other disciplines in the design of parliament buildings. So on that note, is there a particular architecture or spatial relationship between the executive and parliamentary 
representatives that does facilitate that kind of respectful, inclusive, democratic debate? This is a really difficult question because our research has shown that European countries are a rich mosaic of political systems present us with rich histories, diverse histories. There are some convergences which are fascinating and this is what we try to really explore through an architectural method of study. We don't claim, as I said before, an in-depth understanding of the political systems, but we try to look at the relationships of power between the legislature and the executive and between the legislature, the executive and the chair in the parliamentary chambers and to understand how the politics of power, the dynamics of power are played out based on these relationships. One very interesting question that we started with was how do parties sit in the chambers? And we discovered that in 24 country parliamentary chambers, the relationships of the parties is fixed independently of whether they are in power or not. The UK, Malta and Cyprus have a completely different approach to this because the position of parties depends on which is the party that is in power. So they shift based on the results of the election. And the outlier is the Swedish parliament where the MPs sit according to constituency. So they don't sit within MPs from the same party, but they reflect the geographical distribution. So we found that that was really interesting because we had 24 countries that are similar in terms of fixed positions. And the UK and obviously Malta and Ireland that were influenced by the UK have that um, possibility of change of parties shifting position. We also looked at where the executive sits and where the legislature sits. And we found that they divided into two categories. Again, that there are countries where the executive sits is embedded, is integrated within the legislature like the UK, for example. And there are countries where the executive is separate and faces the legislature. So in the first category, there are differences, like, uh, for example, the executive can sit, is embedded, integrated with the legislature, but can sit on one side. And there are countries where they, based on the shape of the chamber, the executive sits uh, in a semicircular arrangement facing the chair. From the countries where the executive is sitting opposite the legislature, they divide into two categories again. Those that um, the executive sit directly opposite the legislature and has the chair behind it, and uh, those where it sits on one side and has the chair in its peripheral vision. These different sitting arrangements generate completely different dynamics. But then uh, we took a view into five parliamentary chambers in order to understand how the visibility dynamics are played out in these chambers. And this came from different chamber typologies. So we had two hemicircles, one opposite facing benches, one circular and one classroom. And these were opposite facing benches, the UK. The two hemicircular were Belgium and the Netherlands. The secular chamber was uh, Slovenia and Estonia was the classroom. So what we found was a very interesting result because in the UK, 57% of the MPs sit in the areas that are mostly observed by everyone else. Whereas in the other chambers, we have a greater variety of degrees of visibility among the different parties and MPs. 
And finally, we looked, we took a closer look at two parliamentary chambers, Belgium and the UK. One is a hemicircular arrangement, the other is opposite facing benches. And uh, we looked at the uh, visibility relationships in the chamber in relation to the rules of the debate, the procedural rules, in order to see how the performance of space from individual behaviors to the movement to the rostrum to speak, plus the procedural codes, add to the spatial power dynamics. So what we discover is really interesting because the UK rules give more space to informality. They are loose, for example, on the issue of quorum, stating that only 40 MPs are required to be present for a vote to take place. However, the MPs in the chamber will not be counted. In contrast, in Belgium, rules for ensuring a quorum are formal and involve counting those present as the sessions answered. And also the UK has fewer rules in terms of time limits, who speaks when, whereas Belgium has more uh, granular rules on this issue. In Belgium, the chair will pre-plan the speaking order. In the UK, MPs catch the eye of the speaker, who speaks when is decided on a more ad hoc basis. And in this system, it is essential that the MPs and the chair are co-visible as the sequency rules of speaking rely on the chair's discretion and assign behavioral language where MPs have to stand up to indicate the ways to speak. There is also a difference in terms of uh, procedures for voting, because in the in Belgium, MPs vote from where they are seated, whereas in the UK, MPs move into the division lobbies, which offer some opportunities for negotiation and um, deliberation. And uh, when there are longer rules in a way, when the rules are more specific and more granular, we would suggest that the parliamentary debate is more ritualized and more formalized, as opposed to the parliamentary debate in the UK, which have allowed a large range of combinations and recombinations based on more intensified forms of interaction. But of course, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the spatial arrangements and protocols will be completely different. Many political discussions have moved online and people will be joining from their own home and sometimes from their bedroom, as I am when recording this podcast. Do you think this trend will continue once the restrictions imposed by the pandemic are relaxed? And do you think it has led to reimagining the spaces where politics happen? I think that um, the need for physical presence is very strong because it um, plays such a strong role in the ways in which scrutiny takes place. And this is something that lots of the parliamentarians we interviewed highlighted and placed increased emphasis on it. Of course, we need to take into account that uh, the ways in which decision-making takes place in the Lords and the ways in which it takes place in the Commons and the nature of the debate in the two chambers are very different. The culture is different. Perhaps the commons is more spontaneous than the lords. So we got different responses. Parliamentarians that are cross-benches in the lords explained the importance of physical presence, of operating within the space of the parliament in the nature of the work that they do. And they told us that until COVID took place and until everything moved to a hybrid parliament, they had not understood how important it was for them to physically be present. Others spoke about the importance of being there in order to really capture the mood in the parliament, in the parliamentary chamber. 
to read the mood of the place and to hold the floor of the chamber as a key aspect in the decision-making process. And the half-empty chamber is unlikely to have the same political strength. Other parliamentarians explained, particularly those that sit in the Lords, that uh, when they are operating in a virtual mode, they can have the opportunity to check information online, to have a range of their notes or books with them, something that is not possible when they are in the chamber because it is not considered dignified. And one can possibly have one or two A4 pages in front of them, but they cannot carry a load of books or iPads or laptops. So there are pros and cons, but I would think that the physical presence in the ways in which scrutiny takes place is of paramount importance. But the need to integrate modern technologies in a different way in the parliament is uh, more generally felt. One particular issue that needs consideration, perhaps, which research can bring into light, is the aspect of physical density in the chamber. Because by calculating the intervisibility relationships, we were able to actually assess and evaluate the density of people that one observes inside the parliament. And the UK Chamber of Commons has the highest density in the five parliamentary chambers that we explored. If I was able to show you the visuals, you would see a striking difference between the density levels in the House of Commons in the UK and the other parliamentary chambers. Of course, this is the way Churchill wanted it, but perhaps that density, particularly during the first period of coming back to our institutions, that type of density might be a little bit problematic in terms of social distancing. But it generally allows that intense feeling of presence and participation and engagement with the debate. That's very interesting, that idea of political theatre and kind of the speaker being on the stage and performing, I suppose, in front of, as you say, a very densely packed audience. But I suppose there's another audience now from Churchill's day, that being a television audience. So how does the nature of political debate change when it's made public through that other kind of spatial dimension, I suppose, of the television or online? We discussed that with the parliamentarians that we interviewed as well. And um, the fact that the debate is televised, uh, some of these parliamentarians said, uh, affects the ways in which the debate takes place or the things that the MPs say, because they know that they are watched by their constituents and they know that they have to actually pursue certain lines of inquiry and uh, take certain positions. Again, this falls within the tension that I mentioned earlier, uh, the need for transparency. So Televising the debate offers that transparency, opens that widely to the public, and the need for confidentiality and negotiation, a great deal of politics and decision-making takes place in other places, not only in the chamber, which are not televised in this way. So it is that interplay between what one says in front of the public, which is broadcasted to a wider audience, and the other types of discussions that take place in other spaces in the parliament and outside the parliament, which is just one of the spaces of political negotiation and discussion. What about the discussions that happen away from 
TV cameras and even away from the chambers, but actually, like you said, outside of the buildings or in the cafeterias and common rooms, how are these shaped by the buildings in which they take place? A lot of scholars of um, parliament and of the ways in which scrutiny takes place in parliament or political culture of parliaments have commented on the importance of these places, of uh, bars, restaurants, tea rooms, in the decision-making process and in the politics, but also the importance for early career MPs that learn the practice of being an MP by using these spaces, by meeting various kinds of people in these places. So politics is not only a matter of the chamber. There is more to politics than the parliamentary chamber. It happens in many other places. And it happens in places which are not specifically designated for social meetings, like the restaurants or the pubs or the bars, but it happens in the corridors. And a great deal of the work that I do really explores how people meet each other on the movement from place to place and how the nature of the spaces that they cover as they move can facilitate these kinds of interactions or they can, can impede them. We think, based on our analysis, that the UK Houses of Parliament is very good in actually facilitating these kinds of interactions because it has a sort of urban-like system, this kind of grid-like systems where there are lots of rings of circulation and lots of alternative ways of moving that can really take people away out of the route and bring them back again, facilitating informal encounters out of which the probability for an informal interaction can spring. So it sounds as if you're expecting a return to Parliament as usual, shall we say, post-COVID. What have been your interactions with parliamentarians across Europe about, might this actually be a moment to create more inclusive and more equitable spaces, whether that be due to debates moving online or, as you say, around moving away from those chats and corridors and kind of side conversations. What have you found in relation to the current situation and whether that might stay for good? The views of the parliamentarians we interviewed, and we did not interview a large number. (laughs) This happened during the pandemic, and uh, the pandemic was extremely difficult period, but at the same time, it opened possibilities for meeting and talking to people that one would find difficult to do before, because you just click on a link and the person is in your uh, study space and off you go, starting a conversation. Their views diverged. Some parliamentarians think that uh, the UK House of Parliament has a tremendous legacy as a building and everything that is taking place in the building should be restored after the renewal and restoration program that will start at some point in this coming decade, a great deal of what's happening should go back to happening in exactly the same way. There were other parliamentarians that thought that, uh, for example, one parliamentarian just said that it is a wonderful building that could perhaps serve as a museum and parliament should go somewhere else and we could have a new parliament. But research 
done by colleagues on the ways in which parliamentarians relate to the building indicates a very strong affective attachment, as, for example, the work of Alexandra Making from the University of Manchester. They have a very strong affective attachment with the building. But personally, I think it's a unique opportunity for some experimentation this period and for really exploring whether different ways of doing things, different layouts, different ways of debating, different shapes and different configurational possibilities can provide new ways of doing politics. Just one last question before we have to wrap up, unfortunately. What is next for this project and for your research in general? Thank you for this question. Uh, It is obviously an ongoing process, our research. So we need to understand, develop a more in-depth understanding of uh, the relationship between architecture and political culture. I would say in order to develop an in-depth understanding of all these political systems in Europe, this is a really big project, but we can maybe offer our perspectives as architects from an architectural method of study. But what I think is also interesting to explore is political institutions that operate at international or supranational levels as well, not only national parliament buildings. One example is Strasbourg as the city where the plenary session of the European Parliament meets, or the Berlimont in Belgium, which houses the European Commission. So how can one imagine and create entities that speak to things that transcend geographical boundaries would be an interesting topic to explore next. So I'm excited about taking the research on political culture and parliaments to this next level. Fantastic. We look forward to hearing the continual findings and your next steps. Sophia, thank you very much for joining us today. Such an interesting discussion. Thank you. This episode of Disruptive Voices was presented by Siobhan Morris and Nina Quash, edited by Nina Quash and produced by UCL Grand Challenges. Our guest was Sophia Safara and the music is by David Saste. For more episodes, follow us on Twitter at Grand Challenges.